Hi, this is Dark Journalist. Today we're excited to welcome back the popular author and Oxford scholar, Dr. Joseph P. Farrell, back to the show. Now, Dr. Farrell's latest book, Thrice Great Hermetica and the Janus Age, is a compelling expansion of his previous work on secret societies and hidden power. Now, Dr. Farrell's research over the past decade has tied together a cosmic war in our distant past with a powerful legacy transmitted down through mystery schools from Egypt to the Knights Templar. Today, we'll add an important piece to that puzzle, the Pharaoh Akhenaten and his major impact on our modern world. You don't want to miss this one. Here we go. Dr. Joseph P. Farrell, Mystery Schools, Akhenaten Prophecy, and Templar Magic. We have a high civilization in high antiquity that is at least as advanced as our own, scientifically, if not more so. My guess is probably more so. I do think these mystery schools viewed themselves as the preservers of this ancient knowledge that was being handed down. They concoct these mythologies, these texts, so that even though the scientific knowledge may decline, the information is preserved in such a way so that when that scientific knowledge comes back, you can go back and look at these myths, go back and look at those texts and decode their meaning. You know, we take a number of things for granted that were taught at an early age about our ancient past that we find out later on are simply not true. All of this manipulated history and the stories that are perpetuated with it are part of a larger design to conceal from humanity some powerful truths that if they were to be revealed would certainly pose a threat to the ruling hierarchy of modern civilization. What makes Dr. Farrell's work so vital to our understanding of the real story is his ability to enter into the minds and motivations of these historical figures and to reverse engineer their clever deceptions. He may have uncovered a treasure of secret knowledge about our world. Let's find out. Joseph, it's great to have you back on the show. Let me start off by saying that Thrice Great Hermetica and the Janus Age is a powerful book and just a real education. Well, thank you. Now we're going to cover the book and your fascinating work on secret societies. But let's start off with Otto Rahn, the young German scholar who made a fascinating discovery about hidden history and the secret of the Holy Grail and how that discovery got him the notice of the Nazi leadership and the figure of Heinrich Himmler, mm -hmm. who had studied occult traditions, becoming more from a black magic tradition. Oh, yeah. Now, what was it about Ron's discovery that made the Nazi leadership stand up and take notice? Okay, well, Ron was this young German um, scholar of, of the esoteric, and he was... Um, he had a thesis about the whole Templar-Albigensian crusade period. And the basic thesis was, was that Wolfram Eschenbach's Parzival was not simply a medieval romance, but it was an allegorical telling of the history of the uh, Languedoc in southern France. And his thesis then was if you, if you took Parsifal and carefully compared the references in 
Eschenbach's book to the historical period of the Albigensian Crusade and to the various Cathar nobility in that part of France, then you could perhaps decode what was going on and find out where the Holy Grail was, okay? In other words, his whole take was that the Albigensian Crusade was not simply a an operation to extirpate heresy, but it was also an operation being launched to recover something that the papacy very dearly wanted to have. Uh-huh. Okay, and that to me that rings true because what you're what you're really saying here is that like all military operations of that nature, there are several purposes or goals in mind. They're not simply going in there to wipe out a bunch of people, which you know, which is obviously one of their goals, because they did. Right. But they're also scouring the area, looking for things, and then you get that whole uh scene or sequence of events at the very end of the Albigensian Crusade when the crusading army is laying siege to Montsegur, the last Cathar stronghold. And then a truce is worked out. The Cathars are allowed to take something out of the fortress. And then the fortress is surrendered. The Cathars are burnt uh, at the stake and so on and so forth. And that is true. And, of course, that has, that has spawned all these rumors. Well, they smuggled out the Cathar treasure. They smuggled out something that, in the guise of something else, that the crusading army had actually been working for. And I find that to ring true, too. Okay. Because when you look at the Albigensian Crusade, the, the Inquisition, the Roman Inquisition, is founded during that crusade as a you know the the papal counterintelligence unit to deal quote unquote with heresy mm-hmm. now we have to understand we have to appreciate what this means in terms of of uh, papal bureaucracy and power politics because when you're founding an institution directly under papal auspices, like the Inquisition, what this means is that they are then given jurisdiction under the understanding of international law in that day to go anywhere in Europe where the Catholic Church is present and to try people for heresy, to detain and, and torture and then try people for heresy. So in other words, this is an operation that is looking for something, and if you'll note something careful here, it's the papal response to the establishment two centuries previously to the Templar Order and to the Knights Hospitallers, which were what? They were these international crusading military orders mm-hmm. that for the Templars was – more or less sort of headquartered in the Languedoc region of southern France, okay? So in other words, the center of their power in Europe is precisely where the papacy is directing the Albigensian Crusade. So 
that signals to me that the papacy has been made aware of something that we haven't yet really truly figured out. But but Otto Rahn is coming along and saying, okay, we've got Parsifal, which appears to be, when you look at it carefully, appears to be telling the story of the Albigensian Crusade in an allegorical fashion. And what the papacy is looking for is not just to exterminate a heresy, but they're looking for something. Yes, and with all of this obsessive attention that they're paying to find it, we'd have to assume that whatever this mysterious item is, it has some powerful implications. So I guess the question should be, what do you think they were looking for? Either an object, the grail, or some sort of hidden knowledge, possibly both. Uh huh. And it eludes them. And then, interestingly enough, Daniel, um, there's this episode that Ron recounts and that I put into the book where he recounts running into a French shepherd when he's, when he's in the Languedoc. And he you know, is curious about their local lore, their local traditions of, of, you know, what do you, what do you people think went on? And the shepherd told him that the armies of Satan, meaning the papacy, were looking for the stones from Lucifer's crown so that they could put it in the papal tiara. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty dark. Yeah, it's kind of creepy when <laughs> when you think about it in 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 uh, conjunction with papal claims and so on and so forth. You know, being being a, a member of the Eastern Orthodox Church at one time, you know, to me that just sends out all sorts of alarm bells. Definitely, because you know we 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 excommunicated the Pope. You know, so right. So we have Ron's story about them seeking out Lucifer's crown, and then the spectacle of the Inquisition. And somehow you're putting these two together, but can you tell us how they relate? The establishment of the Inquisition is kind of telling me that, okay, they know that, that whatever it was that they're looking for, or they were looking for, has eluded them. And so now we need this European-wide international papal Gestapo to go out and find it, uh-huh. which, you know, they start to do. And then, on top of this, two centuries later... You have the suppression of the Templars by Philippe Lebel and, you know, round them up and, and drag them off to the Inquisition and torture them. And, and again, you get this very bizarre, weird, uh, you know, Hollywood. Boris Karloff could not have invented a list of absurd charges like what the Templars were accused of. You know, they were... They were eating babies' meat. They were doing the mass backwards. They were worshiping a head. They were indulging in homosexual initiation rituals. You know, every conceivable weird thing right. that you can, you can think of. So the thing that has always struck me very weird about that is that when you look at the various charger, charges against the Templars in France and England is how how very similar they are, even though they're far removed in time and place from each other as the events are proceeding at the day. Interesting. And if we jump ahead a little bit, a few years later, to when the Templars are fully suppressed, what does Venice, who you point out were the Templars' major ally, uh, built the Templar fleet and so on, what steps do they take? 
Well, the Templars, in effect, being a, an international banking order as well as as a crusading order, this means that they had intelligence. The Templars were quite literally the Venetian Republic's international intelligence. Mm-hmm. So, with the suppression of their or that order, they lose that intelligence capacity. So, what do they do? They pass a law creating the Council of Ten in in 1310, which becomes the Venetian. Um, Diplomatic service, intelligence service, star chamber, I mean, you name it, the Council of Ten did it. And curiously, what you see happening is a lot of Templars who escaped the suppression go into the Council of Ten and either become its functionaries or, in some cases, its actual members. Wow, so they get a new life. Yeah, they get a new life. What Venice essentially did is they created an umbrella organization, a refuge. For the Templars, it's, you know, and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, oh, gee, that sounds an awful lot about like General Galen at the end of World War II making making dirty deals with the CIA that leave him in place. That's so fascinating. It's like they use the same pattern. (laughs) It's exactly the same pattern. Yeah. Now, you refer in the book to this interesting point about the Templars, that they refused to participate in the Albigensian crusade against the Cathars. Now, the question is, why wouldn't they want to take part in this crusade and eliminate the Cathars? Their absence seems pretty conspicuous. Well, yeah, that's another problem. You know, you've, you, let's, look at, let's look at this from the standpoint of the papacy for a moment. The Templar Order and the Knights Hospitallers were founded as international crusading orders to fight the infidel, you know, regain the Holy Land, drive the infidel out of Iberia, which the Templars were successful. In other words, uh, what I'm saying there, we have to be very careful in saying the Crusades were not successful. They were partially successful uh-huh. in that, you know, Spain and Portugal, the Muslims were driven out of there. True. And, you know, that was the major focus in, in, a, in a certain sense for the Templars and the Hospitallers. The, the Middle Eastern thing was kind of a sideshow. Yeah. But anyway, um, from the papal point of view, the, the crusading orders, these two crusading orders, were established under direct papal jurisdiction. Okay? Right. Now, this does two things. This is, I really hope people latch on to this. Because what this does is it removes the Templars from local, secular, or ecclesiastical jurisdiction. And in effect, what that means is they're removed from taxation. Huh. So what this enables these orders to do is to build up very quickly a a pool of of liquid capital. So in other words, it's not by accident that you see commerce in Europe taking off at this time because for the first time in centuries, you have now the ability to accumulate intergenerational capital. All right. That's the first thing. But now, you know, you get the Albigensian Crusade. And, you know, these two orders are directly under the authority of the papacy. And you've ordered this crusade and ordered it to be preached all through Western Europe. We're going to go down there and wipe out these heretics. And what's the response of the Templars and the Hospitallers? Oh, we're not going to go. Right. It's so strange. (laughs) We're not going to go. At this juncture, in other words... The papacy knows 
it has a huge festering problem. Mm -hmm. And it's spread all over Europe. Now, I think what what happens at this point, I think to a certain extent, the, the proclamation of this crusade may have been a test in a certain sense by the papacy to see just how loyal are these crusading orders. And when they back out, the papacy knows they've got a problem. But why are they striking at the long dock? Well, for one thing, as I've already indicated, that was the center of the economic power of the Templar order in particular within Western Europe. They were heavily mixed into the whole Cathar region. And the reason why was they were building these supply roads across the Pyrenees Mountains to get rid of the Muslims in Spain. So in other words, this was their base of operations. This was their uh, Aufmarsch, as, as the Germans like to say. It was their, their forward logistical area. Uh-huh. So uh, this, this is why, in one sense, the Templars bow out, because they're cutting their own supply lines if they get in, involved with the crusade, and they're endangering or putting at risk their own property holdings in the region. That's the other reason. Yeah. And then the third thing is you've got this peculiar claim made by Ron that there's some sort of object or knowledge beyond simply the Cathar belief system that poses some sort of threat, and then you compare that claim against the, the charges that are brought against the Templars later, and you've got all the makings of something huge going on. I see. So things seen and unseen are coming to a head from a variety of angles. Now, what do you think was the major game plan here that was being devised? What you have is a long term strategic plan by the papacy to take out the Templar order. And the first thing you do, you can't strike haphazardly against an international order that's spread all the way from Scotland to Palestine. You have to go for its center of power first. And that's what happens. After they take out that center of power, what happens? That region comes under the fealty of the French king. Okay? Right. And once it does, then once that's secure, you have to allow a certain amount of time for that to to be secured, then the French king strikes at the Templar order in France. And what else does he do? He writes a letter to all the other secular heads of Europe and says, hey, looky, looky what I found out about the Templar order. You guys need to be aware of this and suppress these guys. Uh-huh. Okay? And again, the, the list of charges that he recounts in this letter, I put it in the book, is so ridiculous that nobody believes him. <laughs> right, right, yeah. So they're trumping up these bizarre charges against the Templars, and behind it is some deeper purpose. I think that we're looking at some sort of huge operation here that was deliberately designed, beginning with the Albigensian Crusade, to take out the Templars, that there was indeed probably something very suspicious or fishy going on inside the order that these weird charges are sort of grasping at, but not quite getting down, you know, to, to the exact thing. And then finally they strike Philip LaBelle uh, strikes against the Templars. And again, I think academicism has it exactly 
uh, bass backwards, so to speak, uh-huh. uh, because the academic uh, presentation is that Philip is the guy driving this and Pope Clement V is his creature. I think it's the other way around. I think it's Clement V and the papacy and the power structure behind the papacy that's driving these events, and Philip the Bell is the convenient guy that happens along. So historians have a kind of blind spot about this. It's too inconvenient. In my opinion, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. But the Templars, as we know, were looking for something special. Oh, yeah. So do you think that the possibility that they acquired it and knew how to use it is the reason why they were so suppressed? Well, they were clearly looking for something, because, and I go into this at great length in the book, including some very recent uh, findings about uh, – the so-called temple treasure Mm -hmm. in Palestine that, you know, became a matter of popular discussion after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. Uh, There's a fellow out there by the name of a British guy, by the last surname of of Feather, that has reconstructed the whole idea of the temple treasure not being the temple of Jerusalem, but the temple of the heretical pharaoh, Akhenaten. <laughs> right, yeah. Now, this is the Copper Scroll part. This is the Copper Scroll part, right. Well, let's yeah. go into that now. Yeah, let's do that now. <laughs> this is fascinating. Because this is really important for people to latch on to. Um, the standard view is that the Copper Scroll, the so-called treasure scroll, is referring to the temple treasure of the temple in Jerusalem, which uh, the Jews in Palestine had secretly taken them out of the temple and hidden around various places in an effort to hide it from, from the invading Roman army under Titus, Flavius Titus. And, you know, that's been the standard view. But, but the problem with that view has always been, if you look at the measures of the amounts of treasure that are mentioned in the Copper Scroll and apply the ancient Jewish system of measurement to those measures, what you end up with is an amount of treasure that is <laughs> it's enormous. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's it's so enormous, in fact, that you'd have more gold than has ever supposedly been mined in the world, particularly up to that period of time. So what Feather did, Feather was a British engineer, and he said, okay, let's go back and rethink this. The first thing that he commented upon that kind of set him down the path of rethinking the whole thing was that the copper scroll was uh, contained in copper sheathing. And when the sheathing, when you look at the sheathing, it was the same type of method that had been used in Egypt right down to the rivets. (laughs) Well, that's a pretty big clue. That's a pretty big clue that you're not dealing with something simply Jewish, but you're dealing with something that is perhaps a uh, a Jewish sect that's a remnant of a particular period in Egyptian history. Right. And, you know, by by some pretty complicated argument, he comes to conclude that the period of history that you're dealing with is the Pharaoh Akhenaten, the, the Pharaoh that that said, okay, we're only going to worship one god now, not all these others, you know. Yes, and he had to be the most unusual pharaoh oh, also. Yeah. yeah, by by far. Yeah. So much of his history was defaced and simply yes. thrown out and suppressed right. by the priesthood. Right. And he certainly was a huge threat to their power 
and his own mystery religion of the sun god Aten became a kind of mystical transformation in Egypt at the time. So what Feathers also said that's interesting is that there was something else that was unusual about the Copper Scroll. Yes. And that it's hard to manufacture that. So how could this little spiritual sect create this? Right, right, exactly. He he traces all of this back because of that fact and some other things. He traces it all back to Akhenaten's temple. And therefore, that we apply Egyptian measures to the measures of the treasure in the Copper Scroll. And then it becomes a much more manageable treasure but the problem now becomes you see in terms of knowledge that you have this little sort of jewish egyptian sect for want of a better expression right that's stuck there in palestine that's connected to the essenes out of which incidentally most biblical scholars think christ comes or at least has some connection oh yeah to that community so in other words the knowledge implicated here completely changes because it puts Christ in a kind of um, hermetic milieu, mm-hmm. right? A kind of Egypto-hermetic milieu, which in a certain sense rationalizes some of his teaching much better than if he's coming out of uh, a pharisaical school or a rabbinical school and what have you. Yes. So in other words, you've got the, temple, the Templars now going over to Palestine, And again, it's very clear in the record that these nine original knights that constitute themselves the brotherhood of, you know, the Temple of Solomon and the ostensible reason given in the histories that, well, we're going to protect pilgrims on their way to the Holy Land. (laughs) Okay, you know, now. You and I can smell a cover story a mile away, but apparently academics can't because, you know, nine nights in the middle of a sea surrounded by Muslims who are really pissed off. Yeah, (laughs) right. All of these Christians invading their holy places, you know, nine nights ain't going to do the job of protecting anybody. Exactly. From anything. This is absurd. So, you know, it's very clear, especially after they get chartered to protect people, they decide to go off and start digging under the Temple Mount. Oh, there you go. (laughs) Apparently, protection isn't very high on the list of priorities. Yeah. So, So, anyway, they start digging under the Temple Mount, and then a very amazing thing happens. They apparently find something, two of these original knights hightail it back to Europe and disclose to their relatives. we got to also remember that most of these original nine knights are all related to each other. Uh. And they hightail it back to Europe and share their knowledge apparently with some very powerful people, Bernard of Clairvaux being one of them. And... um, then all of a sudden we get everybody wanting to join this order, turning over vast amounts of wealth and so on and so forth. So what did they find? What could possibly have been that important to concoct a covert mission to go to Palestine, dig up under the Temple Mount and probably a a number of other places as is actually the case. And then bring this, whatever it was, back to Europe. And part of it was a text. Part of this text ended up at the University of Gent in Belgium for translation. 
Bernard of Clairvaux creates their rule, gets the papacy to place this order under, under their jurisdiction. So what did they find? My guess is, first of all, that they found something concerning the history and doctrine of early Christianity. Mm -hmm. And while many people think that they found something damning, what I think rather is that they found this connection to Egypt. Okay. And the reason why is once you say that, once you open those doors that, that Feather opened, this explains why at the end of the era when the Templars are suppressed, that at approximately the same time what's also going on, within a century in Florence, Cosimo de' Medici has brought, found and purchased the texts of the Hermetica, and he's translating them and publishing them all over Europe. So in other words, the Renaissance begins. And what's the Hermetica? Well, they're texts that, by the thinking of that time, were Egyptian provenance that predate the, the Old Testament in their way of dating things back then, and that it contains all this hidden knowledge. I think something like this happened with the Templars. They made the connection to Egypt. They made the connection of early Christianity, of Christ, to the Essenes, to Egypt. And that, in turn, meant that all of those tales that we hear about Jewish bloodline families coming out of Palestine and then spreading all over Europe. This adds another dimension to that because now what's being asserted is that these families have Egyptian roots. In other words, they may be Egyptian nobility yeah. that are much more ancient than Moses and the whole you know, Aaron, Aaron, and tribe of Levi thing. Right, right. So, you know, you throw that into the mix, and you're now dealing with something, a, a bit of knowledge that's very valuable, and you're dealing with a bit of knowledge that, if let out publicly, would shake the papacy to its very foundations. So, yeah, I, th I think something like this is going on. Um, this is at least where all the clues lead me. That's fascinating. So this mystery school tradition in Egypt is probably where this Qumran Essenes, uh, desert community, spiritual sect, have their origins. Right. And Akhenaten, uh, I want to say here that you've looked at Akhenaten's reign from some very unique angles in your work. But how do you view what he was attempting to do? You know, what was it that he was doing that was so unusual and that made him a heretic? I mean, he was instituting uh, monotheism, totally revolutionary at that time, and he was getting rid of the old gods and right. the corrupt Egyptian priesthood. He even moved the capital of Egypt from Thebes to this remote spot that he chose called Amarna. But do you think there was something beyond these surface, almost political style actions? You know, was he uh, attempting to introduce a completely new age for humanity with his Aten worship? Yes. Um, let's, let's look at Egyptian religion for a brief moment prior to Akhenaten. All right. Um, if you look at it very carefully, the Egyptians never denied that there was, quote-unquote, one supreme god. Uh -huh. 
they merely did not think that that was in opposition to that God being able to sire offspring that by the nature of the case would be gods. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, we can't have chimpanzees as human beings as offspring. So, you know, the thinking here is, is rather analogical. Right. So the Egyptians never, never quite lost this idea of one supreme, uh, intelligence force being person what have you uh but by the same token they never put this in opposition to a multiplicity of gods either this is a very this is the very unusual thing about them and then akhenaten comes along and says well all of these other gods cannot be by the nature of the case since they derive from god cannot be the same as that god and therefore we're going to worship this god now I suspect, as you suggest, that, that part of this agenda is political. He's attempting to introduce something new and a new priesthood, all right, and translate and tinker with the received cosmology in such a way that enhances his power and, I suspect something else, obfuscates the, uh, how to put this, it's going to make any sense, that obfuscates the implications of that Egyptian religion, because the implications of that Egyptian religion are that this pantheon of gods is to a certain extent a process, a formally explicit process that human beings are part of, and therefore that human beings can manipulate Okay, through ritual magic, what have you. I see. And, you know, we today say manipulate through technology, same thing. Yeah. So what Akhenaten is do really doing is he's attempting to take that power of manipulation away from all of these various priesthoods and various gods and temples and monopolize it for himself. Uh-huh. So in other words, in a certain sense, I think it could be argued that what Akhenaten is doing is he's sort of the first sort of proto-Yahwist, all right, that we, that we eventually see occurring with Moses and then the Exodus. Right. Okay, so in other words, I think this is what's going on, um, which if you, put it, if you put it into the perspective of, of, um, of esoteric history and what esotericists have said about this period is very interesting because I think it was Paracelsus that made the observation that if you look at esoteric doctrine as a whole body of doctrine or tradition, you have the Egyptians with alchemy, you have Mesopotamia, Babylonia, Chaldea with, astro with astrology, and then you have the Hebrews, the Jews, with Kabbalah, all right? And... In his thinking, and the thinking of many Renaissance hermeticists, these were three fragmented pieces of what had been a unified science at one point. So you see the Renaissance hermeticists trying to put all of this back together into these big, huge systems. And I've always thought that was a very interesting observation, because what do you see the Hebrews doing in their history as recounted in the Old Testament? You see them moving constantly back and forth 
between Mesopotamia and Egypt. It's as if, if you look at it with Parakelson eyes, it's as if somebody back then is moving them back and forth in an effort to try and recollect and reassemble these pieces. Hmm. You see? So if if this type of thinking, you know, I'm speculating wildly here, but if this type of thinking is what may have been going on inside those original nine Templars' heads, and they go over there to Palestine and they find something that is confirming an Egyptian connection of the ancient Hebrews to Egypt, then, you know, this is explosive, you know, just by just on the surface of it it's explosive and if they re if they recover any actual specific detail of of lost knowledge it becomes even more so yes so yeah i think this i think this whole period we have to start looking at this whole period not with academic eyes we have to look at it like we're looking today you know false flag events intelligence operations human nature doesn't change True. So, you know, we need to start looking at the Middle Ages in this way. That's fascinating. So these secret orders in the Middle Ages were attempting to hearken back to this advanced ancient tradition of knowledge and achievement. So if we now look back to antiquity and high development in antiquity and their high technology, could these mystery schools possibly have been formed to preserve this technology and this time not blow civilization up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they kept it underground, only with the priesthood having access to it. And if we go back into that and look at ancient Egypt and Akhenaten's reign and his fall, mm -hmm. is there something in his worship of the sun, Aten, that may be referring to physics and the way he's trying to raise consciousness at that time? You know, was he using this ancient wisdom and thereby exposing this secret tradition. And is that why he and his name were completely removed from all of Egyptian history? Um, yes and no. Um, let's go back to the presupposition that we have a, a high civilization in high antiquity that is at least as advanced as our own, scientifically, if not more so. Right. My guess is probably more so, all right, for various reasons I get into in, in some of my books. But um, when this knowledge begins to be passed down, the first thing that a civilization like that would recognize is going to be necessary to do is to contrive a way that the knowledge is preserved even though the information content may be lost or misunderstood. Uh-huh. So they concoct these mythologies, these texts, so that even though the scientific knowledge may decline, the information is preserved in such a way so that when that scientific knowledge comes back, you can go back and look at these myths, go back and look at those texts and decode their meaning. Okay. So okay. like the Book of the Dead, for example. Like the Book of the Dead. And in Akhenaten's case, then, what we see is a kind of adaptation of the Osirian religion, which, you know, is, is the structural 
foundation, if you will, of Christianity. You've got resurrection, you've got eternal life and, and judgment and all of that stuff. Uh, you've even got parallels in the pyramid text, almost word-for-word -word parallels between the pyramid text and the Gospel of St. John, for example. So, in other words, Akhenaten is taking over those elements of this whole cosmology and reorienting them on this sun worship. Yeah. Okay, now, why? Well, the sun is the source of life. And therefore, it's the most visible. And please understand, Akhenaten was not a primitive. He wasn't saying, we're worshiping the sun. What he was really saying is, we're worshiping what the sun represents. Uh -huh. Okay? What it, what it iconographically symbolizes. Right. And so, Akhenaten, I think, is, is dimly aware that there is some truth to the presence of this helio veneration within Egyptian religion, that there's some profound central thing here. So do you think he has, as Pharaoh, been exposed to the deep mystical knowledge and secrets in the mystery schools, and because he's attempting to basically share it with the masses uh, by all the things he's mm -hmm. doing and setting up the Aten worship, mm -hmm. That's why this priesthood and his military conspire against him, because he's revealing secrets, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I wonder why he has to be so completely removed. Names uh, taken off temples, references in pharaoh texts and monuments completely erased. Right. You know, they basically wanted his entire existence rubbed out. And now, you know, here we are, less than 100 years ago, we find uh, Tutankhamun, King Tut's tomb. It's completely intact, and he, interestingly enough, is Akhenaten's son. Mm -hmm. And there's also mm -hmm. a kind of renaissance around Akhenaten's queen, Nefertiti, in the last century. You know, what's happening here? So, even uh, in the 70s, there was a famous psychic and astrologer, Jean Dixon, and she made a prophecy about Akhenaten's influence, that it would rise again in this century. So, can we comprehend why this Egyptian priesthood wants him disappeared from history? Well, I, I can understand why they try to erase him. Because in a certain sense, what Akhenaten does is he's creating the eventual conditions for what I call Yahwism, all right? Uh-huh in that what he's doing is he's turning the Egyptians from their ordinary cosmological consciousness, which was to perceive in every cosmological act a divine order. Right. Okay? And what he's doing, therefore, is he's introducing, and this is conceptually huge, what he's doing is he's introducing a schism in the cosmology. And he's saying that the divine order is there, out there. And everything else, he's also introducing a social schism. And this carries over into Yahwism. Because everything that went before is false. And this is true. Uh -huh. And to the average Egyptian... This was a, a repudiation of the very essence of their cosmology. Yeah. That, that introduction of a social schism 
within history, within human memory, this was a huge thing. And you see this carried over into Yahwism, and then it's given yet another new twist because the revelation in Yahwism is no longer out here in nature, and we are a part of that revelation. Uh-huh. Okay? The revelation is now embodied in a text. Hmm. You see? And that's a huge turn. That's a huge turn. Because now you're coupling the idea of a cosmological schism and a schism historically that everything out there and previous to this revelation is false. Right. You're also saying that anything outside this text and the system of interpretation of that text is false. So, in a sense, what Akhenaten has done is he set up a chain of events that's going to lead ultimately to the repudiation of that, so to speak, natural religion. And therefore, it's going to take a very long time for what we would call science to get started again, because now all human discovery has to be justified by appeal to a text and its interpreters. And, the, you know, this is huge. I, I can't emphasize how huge this is. Now, fortunately, in that text, you have very unusual conditions carried over from Egypt in that if you read the Old Testament, the idea is given that the moral order is not dualistic. In other words, the heavens, the earth, all obey the same moral order and therefore all obey the same truths. And that means from an epistemological point of view that observations that you make here on earth can be extrapolated to the heavens. And this is exactly what we see modern science doing, beginning with Copernicus, Kepler, Newton, and so on. So that impulse, you know, that fortunately that, that was preserved in those texts. Right. But when, you know, when that, uh, when that tradition carries on into Islam, then you begin to see the introduction of very subtle dualistic elements, and that upsets that cosmological, epistemological view. Oh, that's interesting. Well, if we take the influence of Egypt and the impact of the mystery school teachings, mm -hmm. certainly there's something about Akhenaten and his teachings that make it obvious he got at least some of it from these secret traditions and made them public. Mm -hmm. But the Egyptian mystery school influence, you know, are they the foundations of that secret wisdom, the Templars and the Hermeticists found again in that period? Yes. And that knowledge that comes from the Egyptian mysteries and that mm -hmm. tradition, it actually has its roots in the antecedent culture that was even further back right. before pre-dynastic Egypt which had not only great understanding, but also great technological advancement. Yeah, I, Egypt makes it very clear. The, Egyptian, uh, the Egyptians themselves make it very clear that they view themselves as a legacy civilization. And they are even uh, almost explicit about the fact that they view themselves as a declined legacy, uh -huh. okay? which is a very interesting point of view. Because you get something very similar in a certain sense if you look at Mesopotamian texts from the same period. is You get this impression that they understand they're a legacy and they understand they're a decline legacy. All right? uh, there are Mesopotamian texts just like there are Egyptian texts, for example, 
that refer to the fact that astrology, they come right out and say that this is all based on observation that was taken over thousands of years. Now that's quite a claim because you see, first of all, it's a scientific claim. These were taken on the basis of observations. Well, that means they're, they're, they're making observational correlations between planetary positions and human action. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? yeah. You know, and if that's the case, then what they're saying, this is the science, and to, to, to be able to correlate all that mass amount of data also implies something else. It implies the technology to be able to do that. And detect patterns, you see. Yeah. So, you know, that's the disturbing implication. You can't simply come along and say, well, all of that's pseudoscience. We don't need it. You know, this is all ancient superstition. Because when you do that, you're ignoring what the text is telling you. Mm -hmm. See, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still a patristics guy because when a text says something, there's a reason it's saying it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so there's that problem. So, yeah, I do think these mystery schools viewed themselves as the preservers of this ancient knowledge that was being handed down. This is, this is very, very clear. This is how they view themselves. And it, 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 becomes, um, it becomes a vital part of, of the hermetic tradition. I mean, you can't read the Hermetica without over and over bumping across this idea that the master is passing something down right. to the disciple, all right? Even to the point that their ideas of authorship are different than our own. You know, for them, the author of something was the author of the concept or the God or whatever that inspired you to have a particular idea. That's authorship to these people. Uh -huh. Which is very different because this means again that they're they're concentrated on the continuity of the idea. I see. Yeah. So it's huge. Yeah, that's major. Absolutely. Well, there's something unusual that we have to examine about Egypt. Now you've tied this Qumran Essene community mm -hmm. to some early offshoot version of these Egyptian mysteries. And then we have this tie-in that the Templars probably found between ancient Egypt and Christianity. Now, these two things, the early Egyptian mythology and Christianity, have a central theme in common, and that is resurrection. Yes. So, this is central to both of these uh, traditions. Is this the secret that the mystery schools held? Um, yeah, this is, the, this is something that... I think you've hit a huge target here. Okay. Um, because we have to ask ourselves, where is this weird uh, Osirian religion coming from? Why is it there? What's this whole thing about resurrection? Yeah. Uh, mummification. Uh, and you turn to any ancient human civilization, be it Egypt, uh, Sumer, India, you know, the Vedic civilizations, again, you find this, this idea of immortality, uh, transmigration of souls, and so on and so forth. There's always this hint of something oh, yeah. that, that is there. And with Egypt, we find something very peculiar. We find mummification, a, so to speak, a technology right. of 
let's preserve this stuff because we're going to need it again. <laughs> oh. um, and that's another amazing thing because Egyptian mummies, unlike Asian mummies or Andean mummies, are very well preserved. Preserved. And the yeah. organs yeah. are individually dealt with, you know, sealed in jars mm -hmm. and almost good as new, right? Yeah, exactly. And oddly enough, you find you find the separation of organs reappearing in the Middle Ages with the Franks. That's so strange. You know, the popes had to come out and say, no, you can't chop people up and bury them in pieces. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is really bizarre. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's another, you know, it's another whole avenue to all this. But um, the where is this coming from? Why is it there? Uh, and I'm going to crawl way out onto the end of the twig of speculation here and speculate wildly beyond the weight of the twig able to bear. <laughs> um, if, if we go back and look at ancient creation myths, as I've attempted to do, to do in some of my books, particularly a book called Grid of the Gods, mm -hmm. um, what I think you're looking at is a metaphor. I call it the topological metaphor of the medium. And I'm using the deliberate mathematical term here because I think it is possible to take what remote viewers would call all the analytical overlay. Okay. All of these metaphysical, philosophical, religious terms and shove them aside and replace them with a mathematical notation to symbolize the structure that they're talking about. And what they're talking about is something, let's look at Egypt's case. What they're talking about is something profound. Absolutely. Uh, even the Hindus, for that matter. What they're talking about is that the world, to use the Hindu phrase, is nothing capital N, you know, what's, you know, the old joke, what's the difference between an atheist and a mystic? Well, the mystic capitalizes the word nothing. <laughs> okay. Uh, you look at, you look at the Christian dogmatic tradition, the theological tradition, and again, you have the via negativa, which is the height, you know, it doesn't matter who you look at, they will tell you the, the height of theology is the via negativa, talking about God in terms of what he is not. Uh -huh. Because any term that we apply from uh, human experience or knowledge can only be analogical. It's only going to go so far and then stop short. So in other words, God is a nothing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, you know. uh, interestingly enough, as it turns out, <laughs> if you look at the way that they talk about space in the Middle Ages, well... They use the same terms of space as they use for God. Huh. Omnipresent, incorporeal, uh, non-composite, that is to say it can't be chopped up, um, and so on and so forth. They use the same terms. And so somebody, you know, eventually figures out, hey, guys, we've got a problem here. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Because we're talking about God in physics terms, okay? So, let's go back to Egypt. If you go back to Egypt, they tell you essentially the same thing. Everything came out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo. But what do they mean by that? Well, in physics terms, a nothing is a non-observable. 
Okay? Uh-huh. Once you make an observation, it becomes a something. Ah. <laughs> ah. <laughs> okay. Ah, now we get to Akhenaten. I think I think what you have here is once you strip away the analytical overlay and you start thinking in the most abstract uh, terms of mathematics, just like Descartes, Newton, Leibniz were suggesting that there is something behind all of this. And Leibniz, you know, crazy nut that he was, thinks he's seeing some of it. And he's about, you know, he's all about trying to figure out what it was. You know, he's starting to talk in terms of creating a characteristica universalis, uh, a universal calculus that will enable you to handle almost any subject with a purely symbolic, formally explicit way of doing so. Uh, and he's even making significant stabs at, at the idea of topology. Uh, I think Plato is, is onto this as well in, in his uh, Republic and some of his other treatises. Right. So, in other words, yes, I think uh, this idea of a metaphor of literally differentiating nothing. Let's imagine you've got an infinite sea of nothing of sameness in every direction that you can think of, even temporally. Okay. Now let's imagine, and I'm getting the immortality part here, just trust me. Let us, let us imagine that you cleave it. Now what do you got? You got three nothings. Yes. You've got one region of nothing, and it's still infinite, by the way. And you've got another region of nothing, and it's still infinite. And then you've got the common surface between the two, and it's infinite. But, here's the key, there are now three nothings with information content. Yeah. You're starting to add information into the system. With me? Yes. Now, because they're still all nothing, in the formal description of each of these three things you still have that nothing. So you're also creating analogy and you're also creating a physical medium that's transmutative because every part of it has at some point in its formal description that same nothing present. With me? Okay. Now, you see, you have the basis for all of those ancient uh, civilizations that resorted to sympathetic magic because what's sympathetic magic really all about? It's all about analogies. Uh huh. It's about taking a little piece of this to manipulate that. And the reason why is that has a little piece of this in it. Yeah, <laughs> okay. resonance. Yeah, with me? Yes. All right. Now, as you're adding information to the system, something else begins to happen because you're still dealing with that nothing as you've added information to it. And that information, once added, cannot be destroyed because it's always present in potential. There's a physics term for you in that initial nothing. Otherwise, the information couldn't be created. Right. So, in other words, built into this system, if you look at it from a certain point of view, is the idea of immortality. And not only of immortality, but since we derive from that nothing – of an individual immortality because it's always present in the system. I see. So, you know, the Egyptians come along and while well, we're going to preserve as much of that information as we can. And interestingly enough, isn't it, isn't it peculiar 
because in the preservation of you know mummification what are you preserving really you're preserving dna and what's dna it's information right so you see i think i think all of this is coming out of uh, a declined legacy and a declined perception but nevertheless a perception that as far as it went was accurate yeah you see what i'm saying yeah absolutely well when we look at the osiris myth there are a couple of strange incidents that happen in it mm -hmm. uh, one of them is that he gets tricked <laughs> mm -hmm. and then hacked into a number of pieces and then reassembled right so what is the message there uh, they had this advanced knowledge, and you've pointed out that they, in the mystery schools, hoped at some point humanity would look back and get this message. Mm -hmm. So what do you think the Osiris story means? Part of what I think it means, a big part of what I think it means, is alchemy. Okay. Because let's look at that image of reassembly. As we proceed with all of these differentiations of nothing, adding more and more information to the system to describe each little branched off bit of nothing. <laughs> okay. We're adding, we're adding more and more information into the formal description of it. Well, to the Egyptian mind to, to reassemble something is also to reascend. Uh -huh. Okay. So in other words, if you want to look at it in a certain sense, it's, it's reverse engineering. Yeah. It's, it's, that alchemical process of trying to go back to that materia prima that's able to differentiate in itself in all of these ways and then reassemble the descent of any particular thing from that materia prima. Okay. And that's a heavy, you see, that's the real basis of alchemy. And again, I want to stress for people here, this is all an analogical process. And please note, it's a formally specifiable one just like Newton and Descartes and Leibniz thought that they saw in a lot of these ancient texts. I see. They knew that there was something mathematical going on here. They just weren't quite sure what it was. Right. And that's what I think they were looking at. That's my gut intuition of what I think they saw is precisely what I've been describing to you. Fascinating. And can you describe, of course, alchemy as known in the Middle Ages was the process of turning lead into gold. Now, that's pretty spectacular, but what is it really? Oh, it's turning lead into gold. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not just this cosmological thing, but if you have that cosmology, then yes, it becomes possible to transmute one element into another. And guess what? You know, this is where it gets really cool because... You know, in my, in my Nazi books, I point out that in the mid-1920s, scientists in Germany are playing around with their cathode tubes and zapping things with lots of electricity. And this is also going on, incidentally, in Japan. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and, you know, well, what are they zapping? Well, it turns out, you know, they're doing these plasma experiments. So, you know... They're using a substance that is easily turned into plasmas, and that's mercury. Amazing. Oh, <laughs> and as they're zapping it with gobs of electricity and x-rays, <laughs> lo and behold, they notice that they get little traces of gold 
Wow. That wasn't there before. Huh. Far out. Oh, far out, yeah. <laughs> and I even I even put this this article in, in my book SS Brother Brotherhood of the Bell because one of the most famous physicists of the day by the name of Dr. Walter Gerlach reported on these experiments in a little column filler article in 1927 in the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. And he says, well, you know, our scientists have been zapping a bunch of mercury and we've noticed this little bit of gold residue. <laughs> and this is really an interesting phenomenon. And, you know, we really ought to investigate this because what we're looking at here is a form of here comes the word alchemy. Wow. <laughs> he just comes right out and uses it. Well, there you go. Now, it's important to remember what's really at stake here because this is this is 11 years, Daniel, before the discovery of nuclear fission. Right. So in other words, we don't yet have the theoretical physics model that might be able to explain any of this. Okay. But yet we're noticing and here comes another key point, at very low temperatures, not nuclear processes, in other words. Key point, we're noticing transmutations taking place under certain conditions. Uh -huh. So Gerlach writes this little article in the newspaper, and, you know, it'd be a nice idea if, if we could investigate this further. So, in other words, what do we got? We got a physicist... <laughs> You know, who was a hair's breadth away from a Nobel Prize in 1921. And uh, what he's saying is, you know, we need some money from the government. We want to <laughs> look at this a little bit closer. And it's interesting that at this time in Germany and Japan, you had companies like Siemens, AG, AEG, taking out patents for processes of transmutation of mercury into gold. <laughs> Well, they yeah, well, found something. Yeah, so yeah, it's alchemy because alchemy's founded on the same idea that you've got some sort of materia prima that underlies every physical material thing that we see. So again, you know, what were the alchemists on to here, you know, that they probably didn't understand, but at least they're taking the observation, you know, that something is happening here. Really fascinating. And when we come back, we'll look into what that symbolism of alchemy really means and how there were attempts by the Hermeticists to set up a golden era and how these secret orders may have journeyed to the New World and discovered America long before history records Columbus and his voyage. In fact, maybe he even came much earlier. But who was sending him and why? We'll be back with more Esoteric Mysteries from Dr. Joseph P. Farrell. Dark Journalist Goes Deep. My question is, what are you seeing now? What are the conditions like on the ground in real America? The top guests you want to hear, like investigative reporter Linda Moulton Howe. Audiences are getting it. They are bypassing the government's suppression. Financial expert Catherine Austin Fitz. So there's a lot going on underneath the ground and a lot going on, you know, in the skies. And whatever it is, it's very expensive. Scholar Joseph P. Farrell. If you don't consider the black budget, if you don't consider this hidden system of finance, then you're missing over half of the financial picture. Historian Richard Dolan. I hope listeners realize that this is not a run-of-the-mill interview that I did. Dark Journalist Goes Deep. The most crucial topics, the breakaway civilization, black budget and covert warfare, hidden information, secret finance, UFOs, 
The alien reality. The best interviews. The real story. Visit darkjournalist.com. Sign up for our free newsletter to stay updated on the latest shows. Support Dark Journalist by visiting our Contribute page. Help us deliver cutting-edge truth to you. Join us on Facebook and Twitter. Dark Journalist. The truth is never easy. You know, we need dark journalists, so just keep doing what you're doing. And we are back. This is Dark Journalist, and we're talking to Oxford scholar and accomplished author Dr. Joseph P. Farrell. His website is GizaDeathStar.com, and his most recent book is Thrice Great Hermetica and the Janus Age, just a profound examination of secret societies and secret history. I highly recommend it. Now, Joseph, you do some really interesting analysis on alchemy on many different levels. Uh, what about the kind of metaphysical alchemy that in these mystery schools, they preserved these methods where you could raise your internal energies up and become a finer person mm -hmm. and a greater being? Uh, do you think that this turning lead into gold motif mm -hmm. holds mm -hmm. some kind of symbolic meaning or reference there to that? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you put it in terms of, of becoming finer, and that's a very interesting way of, of putting it because they do use those types of terms to describe uh, the great work and the materia prima. It's a, it's a finer kind of matter. Mm -hmm. It's not the gross, heavy material that we associate with with now right right uh, and again if you stop and consider what they're really saying and you compare it to modern particle physics for example you know the particles are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller so that we're not even really dealing with billiard balls anymore tiny little billiard balls we're dealing with huh, here it comes packets of mathematical information <laughs> hmm. oh <laughs> okay. yeah yeah and you know once you've said that you know, once you really understand what they're doing and, you know, what they're playing around with and their big accelerators, Definitely. you know, it, it becomes really wild. Um, Would you say that something like the particle accelerator at CERN has an alchemical function <laughs> and precedent? Um, <laughs> <laughs> now I know you know the answer. I, I'm, I'm really wanting – I'm. <laughs> <laughs> you can I'm, go for it. I'm really wanting to go there with you, Daniel, but let's save that for another discussion oh, because okay. yes. um, let's just say I am going to talk about Oh, that. good, good, good. But I don't want to talk about that without putting something into people's hands that they can refer to. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. If you take my meaning. <laughs> yes, I can appreciate that, definitely. Um, yeah. But yes, I do think when you when you look at these experiments that they began to do with their cyclotrons and synchrotrons and all of that stuff uh, back during World War II and since, um, they're doing some very alchemical things when you really stop and think about it. And when you really dig into uh, the philosophical discussions that physicists were having, uh, back in the 1920s and that have been carried on ever since because there's, you know, there's, there's basically two schools 
uh, of approach to quantum mechanics. And um, both of them are cognizant of the fact that what they're playing around with are, are packets of mathematical information. Mm-hmm. And the real question is, is this real or, you know, is this purely a mathematical artifact? Um, you know, once you put it that way, then you see the difficulties. So, yeah, I do want to talk about that eventually, but I want to put enough information into people's hands uh, that will make sense. Well, that's very interesting, and I want to revisit that with you when the time comes. So right now, let's go back into what the Templars were attempting to do. Now, you make an intriguing observation in the Thrice Great Hermetica book that around the Templar era, there were actually some attempts to create a Hermetic state or a Templar state, mm-hmm. and that received a major pushback at the time. And I find this so interesting, and it makes sense to me, because there's this amazing release of this ancient wisdom mm-hmm. seemingly out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that later, uh, the Rosetta Stone is part of that knowledge spree also. It's almost as if these esoteric teachings are being poured into society to break up these power circles that have become archaic. Right, exactly. Well, you know, the idea of a Templar state, this is, this is the other thing that makes the Albigensian Crusade so extremely suspicious because uh, I think it was um, King Juan II of, of Aragon that on his death willed his entire kingdom, you know, the area around Barcelona in modern-day Spain, willed that whole kingdom to the Templars, Huh. you know, which would have set up their state. And then you have the fact that just across the Pyrenees Mountains, you've got this heavy Templar presence in the Cathar region of the Languedoc, all right? So in other words, it looks to me like, yes, the Templars were trying to do something using all that power and all their wealth to literally, you know, thumb the nose at the very institution that had given them that power. And the papacy turns right around and, you know, smashes it. Um, But had they been successful in doing that, had they been successful in creating their own kingdom and then coupling it somehow with the Cathar region, this would have been, you know, right in the middle of the papacy's backyard in the most prosperous region of Europe to boot at the time. Right. Uh, This would have unhinged the power structure of the day talk about revolutionary you know there would not have been anything even remotely like it even the renaissance with the huge change in in cosmological outlook that it brought about even that didn't do anything so much revolutionary politically that took some time